day 93 of our journey through Scripture. Uh, today we are finishing the book of Numbers with chapters 35 and 36, and then we're also going to be looking at Luke chapter 9, verse 28 through 56. If I sound a little bit weird, I think it's because I'm coming down with a bit of a cold or something like that. Uh, when you have kids, they tend to bring a lot of germs home, so that is the situation I am in. However, I feel like the um, <laughs> I feel like the bug kind of makes my voice a little bit more chocolatey. So um, there's a there's definitely it's not it's not a total loss. Uh, I like I like the chocolate here. Um, well, that's not what you're uh, tuned in to listen to. So <laughs> let's continue and look at numbers. Um, so in chapter thirty five. Um, this is the Lord speaking to Moses, again, in the plains of Moab there in the Transjordan. And the first thing that gets touched on in chapter 35 um, is the uh, guidelines for Levitical cities. So not only, uh, we, we've said before that the tribes will e each get their own inheritance and um, that the Levites are scattered among the tribes um, in, in different locations to do their, their various uh, duties. Um, but they're not just simply living wherever, they're given cities. So certain cities are to be Levitical cities, and those cities are their inheritance. Um, and they're not just given the cities, but they're given pasture lands. Okay? So unlike normal Israelite families, which are given tracts of land, as we have noted in perpetuity, the Levites are given cities with the surrounding area being given as their pasture lands. Now, there's a little bit of confusion, um, and I'm not really sure how to, um, how to parse this out, but the measurements of the pasture lands, it's a little bit unclear. So in verse 5, I'm sorry, start in verse 4 rather, um, it says that the pasture lands of the city, which you shall give to the Levites, shall reach from the wall of the city outward a thousand cubits all around. So it sounds there like you're drawing like a, a thousand cubit radius around a city. Just as a reminder, a cubit is roughly the measurement from the tip of your finger to the elbow. It's about how you could think of it, uh, roughly 18 inches or so. And then... Um, <clears throat> Uh, and then the, verse 5 gives another measurement. You shall measure outside the city on the east side 2,000 cubits. And then the uh, same goes for the, the south, the west, and the north, with the city being in the middle. So there it looks like you're given a, a measurement of 2,000 cubits. And what the actual, what ex, uh, how these are to relate, the, the 1,000 cubit radius and the 2,000 cubit radius, uh, which again is... Uh, um, uh, the 2,000 cubit would be about 1,000 yards. The 1,000 would be about 500 yards if you're trying to visualize. But like what, okay, so which one is it? Which one, uh, it seems like two different measurements are being given for the same thing. Um, there's obviously a logic here that we're missing. I don't think you have like a contradiction or anything, right? You've got two things said right side by side by the same author. Um, uh, obviously, th this was understood um, the difference between this was understood at one point, but it's unclear to us. And all I can say is that this is just something that puzzles me. I'm not sure how to put this together. And uh, I think a, a, 
getting to know the scriptures, and we've we've run and bumped into a bunch of places like this. There there are going to be some things that you just that you don't get that are head scratchers that you just say, hmm, I don't know. And this is one of them. I I just don't really understand how those go together. I will say um, some interesting little factoids about this measurement. Um, the rabbis, <clears throat> there's a strong rabbinic tradition, um, a pretty ancient one, that this um, this 2,000 cubit limit actually is um, what they they took this and 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 said this is actually the limit that you can walk on a Sabbath. So 2,000 cubits. That this is this is this is the limit of of walking on a Sabbath. Um, not, not the obviously the inference how you get there from that text. It's not like they're saying that this is what this text teaches, but uh, that's one application that they drew from this. Um, again, the issue with the Sabbath being like it just says don't work, right? And uh, but the the question is like, well, what constitutes work? What con and and so the amount of walking was something that that when the rabbis seeking to figure out how to obey that command, something that they did. Whereas at Qumran. This is the, uh, the Qumran uh, sectarians. This is the group that produced the Dead Sea Scrolls. So these are, this is a group that's um, active in like the intertestamental period, the period between the testaments. Um, they, um, they saw the, uh, the, the, the thousand cubit radius as the limit for the Sabbath. So there's various traditions within Judaism for which we have evidence uh, treating these different ways, but inferring similar things from them. Um, at any rate... Um, we're introduced here to to the concept of the cities of refuge. So throughout the tribes of Israel, there are to be six cities of refuge set up, which are uh, Levitical cities, and this is for so that the manslayer can 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 go there. So this is the person, the the killer, Harotzeach. That's um, the the word uh, Ratzach is the uh, word for you shall not uh, kill in the in the Ten Commandments. The one who kills another can flee there, and there are forty-two other Levitical cities besides this, so a total of, of forty-eight, and they're taken in proportion to the tribe's size. But um, these cities of refuge are uh, so that um, so that the the person who kills someone can flee there, <clears throat> uh, and this is the person who kills a person. Um, unintentionally. You recall back in Leviticus when we were talking about sin offerings, um, you have the expression, um, uh, if anyone sins unintentionally. So uh, this is the same expression there. There's there's um, an accidental character to this. There's a not knowing. This is essentially manslaughter. And I think this is important, that, that the Old Testament does draw a, a distinction between manslaughter and murder. That um, that that intentionality, purposefulness, is is a factor, and um, I think you know we this is an important thing to to keep in mind in terms of um, how we think about justice when we think about like killings that we see on the news or not. Um, um, if what is the intentionality here? Not all killing is is intentional in murder, and the law of God makes a distinction between that. Um, so it gives a few instances of what purposeful murder might look like, like if you did, did it with a wooden tool, if you push someone out of hatred and they die, okay? Um, <clears throat> if you lie in wait, you throw an object, if you have, if, um, if, if you have enmity towards them. And uh, the one who is to, um, well, if, if you do that, if you, if you purposely murder someone, 
then you are subject to death yourself. This is a capital offense. And the one who has the right, although I would say not the requirement, but the right to carry this out, is uh, called the Avenger of Blood, the Goel Hadam. Now, a Goel is actually the same word for a kinsman, the kinsman redeemer. Remember, we've seen this concept where you have a uh, someone close, close enough relative who can redeem land that's been forfeited for debt or something like that. Well, this same individual, this this same kind of like circle of individuals, like this closeness of family members, has the right to um, exact, um, uh, well, to enact a death penalty for murder, if that is um, if that is something that they desire um, toward towards a murderer. But if um, if it is sudden, if there is no enmity, if they were not lying in wait. If they accidentally drop the stone on someone, say, okay, so this is manslaughter, <clears throat> then the congregation shall judge. So they, there is to be, um, there is to be a, an adjudication as to the actual facts of the matter. Uh, and then they shall rescue them because um, potentially uh, the, uh, the Goel, the kinsman, the avenger of blood um, would be... Um, it, let's say they're they're like I don't care. He killed him. We we want we want our pound of flesh, right? Uh, keep keep in mind that this is civil law. Okay, this is this is law that is meant to govern both believers and unbelievers. Okay, so this is this is not to say this is this is like limiting. Okay, um, it's not to say that uh, that it's right to want uh, vengeance for manslaughter or anything like that. Um, no, it's it's just the, this is how the, the the nation is to function, and that's one of the distinctions between Old Testament law and New Te- Testament ethics, like the law of Christ, as we might call it, is that that is to govern people who are all redeemed, who all like in the sense of 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 being united to Christ, saved from their sin, um, true children of God. Whereas the law of Moses has to has to deal with um, people who are like that, who who are saved, whom, whom we will know in eternity, um, as well as people who um, could care less about God and could care less about justice and their neighbor. Okay? So this is a law that has to be governed them all. So the congregation judges them to be um, not guilty of murder, but only of manslaughter. They are to be rescued from the hands of anyone who might be seeking their blood and then brought to the city of refuge, to one of these cities of refuge. And there they are to remain until the death of the high priest. Notice that another aspect here then of manslaughter is that they're not getting off scot-free. This is something that uh, that that does hurt. It is somewhat of a penalty, right? It is it is a city of refuge, but if each is each Israelite is important. They've got families, they've got responsibilities and things like that, and one could presumably spend a, a, a good amount of time in a city of refuge. Now, cities of refuge were not prisons, and a person uh, can work and earn a living. There, there's, there's um, um, Presumably, there would be a provision for one's family to come with them, um, and it isn't as if they can't leave the walls of the city. Keep in mind that, that pasture land around the city is also um, a part of the possession um, but, but it's, the point is, is that, um, even in the case of an accident, a human life has been taken and something, uh, that counts for something. And, um, 
this would this would encourage people to be cautious, right? To not uh, as well that that okay, just because I'm not murdering someone, I I can disregard their life. Like let's say you have a servant or something like that. No, you're still liable for cut for things like that. You're just not as li- you're not you're not liable to the death penalty. Much like the law today, right? Like if I um, I'm reckless driving my car and I kill a pedestrian or something like. I could be charged for vehicular manslaughter, even if I didn't mean to do it. That's not being charged with murder. And I'm, you know, still going to pay a pretty heavy price for that. I probably have to do some prison time and stuff. Um, there, but there, there's a distinction, but it doesn't mean you're, you get off uh, scot-free. Uh, we also have um, in this passage that we read today, uh, various uh, principles of justice. So for example, no one is to be put to death on the evidence of just one witness. Uh, keep in mind, this is a point in history, far before forensic science and things like that. Legal cases were heavily dependent upon witnesses. Um, that is a strong um, aspect of the meaning of you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor in the Ten Commandments. Um, and because um, because the uh, taking of all life, including a person who is accused of a crime, is uh, is a big deal, you have to have really good evidence for it, and so um, and so this requires um, um, that no one can be put to death for with only one witness. That doesn't it does not uh, again back to this principle about what the law does not say. That doesn't mean that if you only have one witness, nothing can be done. Okay, it just means you can't do the death penalty. All right, so the judges within Israel <clears throat> do have leeway to impose other forms of sanctions and penalties on people who cause harm. It's it's just that, just like in, again, in, in modern law, um, there's a higher, tends to be a higher level of scrutiny, um, higher, um, especially in like appellate courts and things like that, for when the death penalty is sought because it's such a final punishment. The same here. Um, and it wouldn't just be for murder, but for any capital crime. There needs to be more than one witness in order to do it. So um, uh, there's, uh, but uh, the other, another thing, if if the charge is murder, there is no ransom. So the, the, this is just clarification. The principle of ransom does not apply for, <clears throat> for instances of murder. And... Um, there's uh, there's also no ransom for the manslayer who has fled to the city of refu- refuge. So he can't have like a rich uncle who just comes, pays his ransom, and he's allowed to leave before the death of the high priest. Um, and um, and then you get this 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 principle given in verse thirty three uh, that is pretty interesting here. Um, you shall not pollute the land. So this is this is essentially why to take cases of death as particularly um, to treat them with with a high level of uh, importance and scrutiny. You shall not pollute the land in which you live for blood pollutes the land. So killing pollutes kind of like this whole arrangement that God has with you and no atonement can be made for the land for the blood that is shed in it except by the blood of the one who shed it. Here once again we have this concept of atonement being used uh, for outside of the, the the sacrificial system, I remind you that this concept is used in a similar way. Uh, for example, when uh, Phineas uh, killed the um, the man who had taken a Midianite woman into his tent in Numbers twenty five thirteen, 
where uh, it's said that he was jealous for God and thus made atonement for the people of Israel. He's not making a sacrifice. He's doing an action that in some sense um, cleanses from guilt. And then um, also in Numbers 3150, um, the the bringing of um, of offerings that um, had been um, had been from from the spoils that had been captured during the uh, battles with the um, with with Midian um, is said to have to to make atonement for themselves before the Lord. So this concept of atonement does uh, that is that is outside of uh, formal animal sacrifices uh, is definitely um, an interesting thing that I, I like to note when we come across it in the Old Testament. Um, the con- now the concept of blood polluting the land. Uh, this is something also that is um, occasionally found throughout the Old Testament. For example, Jeremiah three one says um, uh, refers to certain forms of adultery as um, as as polluting the land. Um, uh, it also uh, Jeremiah also has the idea that um, <clears throat> that uh, um, idolatry. Um, which is fi- which is um, sometimes figuratively spoken of as adultery or uh, I, uh, whoredom, as uh, the ESV will put it. Um, uh, you know, uh, the prostitution is a metaphor for idolatry, right? Like you you give yourself to other gods. That too is sometimes referred to as as polluting the land. Okay, and um, now uh, we go to uh, chapter thirty six, and we find. Um, a return to the issue of the daughters of Zelophehad. Now, you might recall that earlier on in the book of Numbers, when the tribal allotment was being um, considered, the daughters of Zelophehad, who is um, was a guy who was part of the tribe of Manasseh, uh, came before Moses and was like, "We, you know, our father, our father had no sons. So, what will happen to the uh, inheritance left by our father if only males can inherit it?" It, and so the ruling then was that in this case, um, uh, in the case of a man who has no sons, inheritance can be passed to one's daughter. Um, and then elaborated on even more that if there's no children at all, then, you know, you have other, uh, this is, these are the directions it's to go, the inheritance is to go in. But by no means is someone's name to be wiped out from Israel just because um, there's issues with a lack of uh, progeny. Here, um, Another issue comes up here, and that is that um, it, let's say they, they the daughters all receive their inheritance. Well, they're still probably going to be married, and um, whatever family they're going to be married into, especially if they're married across a tribe, um, that inheritance would then be transferred to a tribe, to another tribe, right? So uh, because of the woman's, let's say, uh, lateral social mode, mobility, I think that would be the right expression for it, um, that inheritance would go with them and marriage would just uh, then be another means of uh, depriving their father his posterity in Israel. Um, and so the the uh, the determination then made is that let them marry whom they think best, which is uh, kind of from the perspective of not liking arranged marriages, that's a, that's a good thing, okay? Um, but within their own clan or tribe. So um, should a woman be under this situation, she is restricted uh, for potential suitors to those within, within the tribe and particularly within the clan so that inheritance is not lost. Um, 
And then the book ends with a um, summary here. These are the commandments and rules that Yahweh commanded through Moses to the people of Israel in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho. And that, folks, is the book of Numbers. Um, Can't wait to jump into Deuteronomy tomorrow with you. But before that, let's go to Luke. Uh, Where are we today? Luke chapter 9, verses 28 through 56. This is Luke's account of the transfiguration of Jesus. Um, uh, Here we have a um, kind of uncharacteristically specific time designation in Luke. Remember, I often have noted how Luke uh, appears to be a little bit more random in his collection of things. Um, He tells us, uh, eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And um, as he is praying, and we've we've seen this um, uh, throughout the um, <clears throat> throughout the uh, transfiguration accounts that uh, that, that were in uh, Mark and Matthew, Jesus is transfigured, transformed in some way before them. His his bodily appearance is changed um, with the appearance of a. Uh, of a of a heavenly being often terms oftentimes being clothed in white means that you belong in the presence of god uh, so citizens of heaven are clothed in white uh, the white linen of the priests of the old testament etc cetera, etc cetera. um so yeah so jesus is transformed and um luke has an interesting thing here uh it's interesting language but there's a lot of disagreement as to what exactly um what exactly it means um, but, um, but in, um, verse, uh, what am I looking for? Verse 31, it says that, uh, we're told that Moses and Elijah appeared with him and, um, in, in glory, they appear with him. And, um, so they, they too have a glorious appearance and they speak of his departure. And, uh, most of your Bibles will probably have a footnote there that the, um, that the Greek term for that, um, which is, it's surprising and it's rare and it's a little perplexing exactly what Luke means by this, but he actually says they spoke of his exodus, the the Greek word being exodon, um, the lexical form being exodos. Um, so the, the, the coming out, uh, this is the same title as the title for the, uh, uh, book of the Bible exodus, of course. Did you know that, um, uh, Genesis and Exodus uh, both have a um, uh, both have a title that's um, that's that's taken from Greek. Um, uh, actually, uh, <laughs> Leviticus as well, and as well as Deuteronomy. Um, but um, as opposed to having uh, Hebrew titles, there are titles in the Hebrew Bible. But I'm getting uh, I, I'm kind of straying here. Um, it says he spoke of his Exodus, and what exactly it means by that is a little is a little bit um, difficult to put our finger on. Um, some, for example, have suggested that uh, perhaps it is his 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 leaving of heaven. Exodus is basically just means a going out. Um, but it is something that he is about to accomplish, right? So it's not, it's 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 likely that he's it's talking about something having to do with his 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 death and to his and to his perhaps to his um, second coming as well. Um, I just flagged the language there, uh, in that there's something going on there. I, I feel like this is a day when I, I'm raising questions that I don't know the answers to, right? Like the, the radius around the Levitical cities as well. 
Um, but a, a lot of people note that this is the language that that is used here. Um, but the, exactly why Luke calls this an exodus is a little difficult to know, but it, there probably is some kind of connection he's trying to draw um, with the um, with the concept of exodus. I, I would note that the New Testament does refer to the coming of is the Israelites out of Egypt as an exodus uh, uh, in Hebrews 11, uh, 22, that language is used. Um, so um, uh, it, it's a little bit tricky too, because the word can doesn't have to bear this like technical meaning where it's, it's like definitely linked with the, um, the exodus from Egypt um, as second Peter one 15, um, uh, Peter uses this um, the same term simply to refer to his quote-unquote departure. I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. So it may just be his departure and uh, then by like signaling that Jesus calls what's about to what he's about to do in Exodus and kind of trying to look into it and find a deeper meaning that may it, we may be looking at something that that you know Luke doesn't intend. Um, like get, making much ado about not that much. Uh, but I just wanted to flag the fact that that is the language that is used here and it is something that is unique to Luke. Uh, interestingly, in verse 32, we find that Peter and James and John says that they were heavy with sleep and then awoke. So actually, the, the initial transfiguration of Jesus was something that they had been apparently sleeping during. Um, so perhaps like they, they thought, that Jesus was, this was going to be another time when, you know, he's going up to the mountain to pray. He's going to be a while. Let's doze off. He's Jesus being much of a, more of a prayer warrior than we are. And they, um, but then when they wake up, he's standing there transfigured with Moses and Elijah speaking to him. And we basically know the, 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 the rest of uh, the story here. Uh, Peter uh, wants to make tents for Jesus, uh, for Moses and for Elijah and um, a cloud comes and overshadows the mountain. Um, there's uh, they're overcome with fear. This notice how how similar this is to Sinai, and um, and the voice comes from the cloud and it says, "This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him." Um, <clears throat> Moses symbolizing the the law. Uh, Elijah symbolizing the prophets. Right, individuals you should be listening to. Um, the, the cloud uh, on top of the mountain, it's hard to miss, as I said, the, the reference to Sinai. But now the revelation is not listen to Moses, but this is my son, my chosen one. You listen to him. Um, <clears throat> this idea of something something greater than Moses has come. And um, <clears throat> after that voice speaks, they find Jesus there alone. And, um, and um, they are then subsequently quiet about this and don't go advertising it. To the others, the next day, uh, the uh, another one of these uncharacteristically Lucan um, time signatures here. Uh, they come down from the mountain and they're met by a great crowd waiting for them. And in that crowd, there is a man who uh, has a complaint, or at least is pleading with Jesus, saying, hey, "Look, I've got this son who's oppressed by a demon. He's my only child, and um, it's it's terrible. He it convulses him. He foams at the mouth. It says he shatters him, uh, and 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 it hardly ever leaves him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, and they couldn't. And then Jesus says, which is um, an unexpectedly uh, harsh response. Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here to me. 
this is perhaps Jesus's disapproval of the disciples' lack of faith and, and their lack of inability to do this, or perhaps it is uh, owing to um, the the lack of faithfulness in the crowd. Right? He's 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 concerned with a with just the the general lack of faith that people have in the power of God to deliver, and. Um, and, and as Jesus is coming to him, the demon throws the boy on the ground and convulses him. Jesus rebukes the spirit, heals the boy, gives him back to his father. And um, the response is something we've seen a bunch of times in Luke. They were astonished at the majesty of God. Um, <clears throat> next up, we have um, uh, in the aftermath of this, everybody's still excited about this. And Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, let these words sink into your ear, the son, ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Um, <clears throat> so this is the, the second prediction now uh, of Luke's predict the second of Luke's predictions now of Jesus' death. Um, and um, uh, this is a, an abbreviated form of what we saw in verse 22, which was the first prediction. And again, the disciples are perplexed. Um, and, um, and not only are they perplexed and confused, because this is, Jesus is always saying challenging things. He speaks in parables. He speaks cryptically. Um, what exactly does he mean by this? That's not clear to them. Um, and it actually says it was concealed from them, which suggests that God does not um, actually want them to really grasp it quite yet. He wants the events, God wants the events to unfold, in fact, as they do. And the apostles' heart pop or I should say disciples' heart posture going into the um, the events surrounding Jesus' arrest and eventual death and crucifixion um, is something that God <clears throat> wants. It's something as, as that's part of his plan, that, that his son would be abandoned by his companions and would die essentially alone, um, accompanied um, by uh, the group of his faithful women followers. Um the disciples then bring this uh, bring this uh, news to Je- some more news to Jesus. Um, again, Jesus has been up in the mountain for some time, at least a day, and the, the events have transpired. They want him to know about it, and they say, "Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us." So he's not among like the hardcore Jesus followers who follow you everywhere we go, and he's trying to do like what we're doing and. And Jesus tells him, do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. Um, so this idea that um, that there are others, it's not just all about you guys. And if the if he's doing legitimate good in my name, that is truly in my name, then, um, then that is something that should be celebrated, not something you should stop just because they're not in the inner circle. Then Luke tells us, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and this is when things start getting dark, okay? Um, uh, and and he goes to Jerusalem, and as we'll also see in the Gospel of John, in order to get to Jerusalem from Galilee, you have to pass through the region of Samaria, uh, where the uh, Samaritans live. And uh, we'll talk a little bit more about Samaritans <clears throat> some other time, but uh, needless to say, they, are not, they don't have particularly friendly relationships with the Jewish people. Um, although there is a relationship between, they are somewhat related. Um, but the, the the people there, this these villages of Samaritans, or, or this particular village of Samaritans, do not receive Jesus. They don't want him there. And it was because he's intent on going to Jerusalem. That's how high the animosity is. 
and the and James and John see it, and they say, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? So they have this wrathful attitude towards them, and Jesus rebukes them, and they go to another village. Um, the, the sons of uh, Zebedee, James, and John are elsewhere called the sons of thunder. This may, in fact, be where Jesus gives that name to them, or perhaps the disciples started calling them that after they had um, been so kind of heartlessly bold to suggest, like, th th these guys are like the Sodomites. Let's, let's, let's call down fire from heaven on them. And, um, but Jesus instead, instead, um, pleading mercy for them and, and rebuking them for having that in their heart to do that, um, to them, uh, that is not their place, right? Their place for, for someone who, uh, people or villages who reject them, you might recall, is to wipe the dust from their feet, not to seek divine justice and judgment against them. So, okay, well, that is it for today. Thank you for joining me. Look forward to being with you tomorrow. Until then, keep reading scripture. Take care. Bye-bye.